Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. You know, lately I've been really feeling being a business owner uh, in a good way. So, you know, a couple months ago, I was really feeling a lot of pressure. Obviously, we've been going through this whole situation with COVID, which is tough for all businesses. And being a small business owner, the pressure is on. You got a bunch of people who are looking at you to know what to do. And I will tell you that knowing what to do is very hard. I don't know about you, but I've never been through a pandemic before. So I'm just trying to do the next right thing. But that pressure a few months ago was really on me, especially when you're thinking about things like transitioning, uh, transitions of business, people leaving, bringing new people in, thinking about budgets, how to, how to get from here to there. There's a lot of stuff going on. But just lately, I really turned the corner. And maybe it's because the seasons are changing. It's spring. I'm feeling good. But I really f- just I'm feeling it. I'm feeling that sense of owning my own space, like trusting my instincts leaning into, you know, like my gut feelings and also trusting the people around me. You know, I'm really lucky. I work with some really, really great people. Not some, all. They're all just fantastic. And lately I've just been like interacting with people on the team and being like, damn, like this is good. I feel good right now. And it's one of those moments where I don't know, you know, I don't think I'd ever go back. I don't think I'd ever go work for someone else. Not because there wasn't something to gain from it or it wouldn't be nice to let someone else hold the reins for a while, but more so because I just realized like when you build something and it's built well, it's going to feel that way. Not all the time, but more often than not. So I just feel good about it. And that leads us to our conversation today. We're speaking with Armand Majidi. Armand's the drummer of Sick of It All, which is for me, like an iconic band in punk and hardcore scene, um, we're going to be discussing pushing it to the limit. You know, if there's a band that I could think of who has been a part of this community of punk and hardcore, but have consistently pushed the boundaries of creativity, of, you know, like representing yourself as a band, but also how to do business, it's sick of it all. In fact, I really think uh, sick of it all is kind of patient zero. They were the first hardcore band that really figured out how to do it as a living while also staying really ethical, staying who they are, and also being like a hardcore band. You know, they, to me, wrote the book on how to do the business of hardcore in a way that's like awesome. So this conversation uh, is fantastic. Armand is uh, A, just a great guy, really, really great guy. And B, he gave us a lot of great insight on how they did it and what bands could be thinking about today. So to tell you a bit about him, Armand is a, like, a long-standing member of Sick of It All. He joined in 1986 and has played on 14 of the band's records. Um, he's also been in bands like Rest in Pieces, who are, again, legendary. And of course, you know, hardcore favorite, The Incredible Straight Ahead. Um, you know, Sick of It All has had this incredibly storied career, but of course... Everything came to a halt as COVID-19 took a hold of the world. And so it's been really interesting to see how that band has been able to survive, which he talks about a little bit uh, in our interview. So 
As one of the first hardcore bands to turn their music into a real career, Armand has a really unique perspective of being a creative professional with the ultimate control and direction of his own career. So he's going to speak about it today. So before we get into that, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Uh, Like I mentioned in our intro, today we have someone that I'm super psyched to have on here. Someone I've grown up listening to their music. I've really watched the way that they've built their band as a very ethically sound, super cool business that has allowed them to live off their art. So it's a huge honor to have him here today. Uh, Welcome to the show, Armand. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, man, there's so much I want to talk to you about today, from sick of it all, to resting in pieces, to straight ahead, to you know everything about New York hardcore. I could geek out about all this stuff from just a fun perspective for hours with you. But the thing that I'm really interested <laughs> to talking about is just like sick of it all, in my opinion, Patient Zero. It's, I believe that sick of it all was the first band that figured out how to make their passion a living while also still saying super cool, super relevant, and like ethical, like you stayed who you really were the whole time. And that's really what I want to talk about today. And my first question for you is like, I just want to know about you. So tell us a bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, and what led you to the punk scene. Well, I was born in Iran, in Tehran. My father's Iranian, my mom is American. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, during my childhood, I was always kind of like, searching for the most aggressive music anytime i heard like a hard rock song on the radio for example even in iran you know like the the, the music would make its way over there and um everything that was heavy caught my ear you know and like you know we would spend summers in uh the states visiting with my american grandparents and queens so uh i would do a whole lot of record buying and you know getting what my hands on whatever kind of music that I could. And it was always going for the hard rock or heavy metal from the seventies, like, you know, black Sabbath, Alice Cooper, um, deep purple, uh, Judas priest, you know, like things kind of progressed, you know, with time into things like Judas priest, iron maiden, stuff like that. And, but, uh, that was also around the time when I was leaving Iran. So, uh, you know, when the, after the revolution happened and after the the you know islamic republic was put into power over there we realized that we had to leave so we made our way out of there in june of 1980 and uh on our way we stopped in switzerland to take care of a whole bunch of like paperwork as far as being like you know transitory and all that kind of stuff and um i uh, my brother and i saw the iron maiden for their their first album in a record store in switzerland and we were just like god damn can you believe that look at this album cover you know it's like the most striking album cover ever and uh 
So we knew that was a, a record that we'd have to pick up on once we got to the States and we did. And so like all of like the, uh, and during the whole process of like learning to love music, you know, I was always kind of tuned in on what the drummer was doing. I was paying attention to what the drummers were doing in these bands. And uh, uh, so, you know, when we moved over here, we ended up in a studio apartment in the back of my grandparents' house in Queens. So we, it was three of us living in just one room. And obviously I couldn't have a drum set. So I ended up getting a guitar. And uh, so I, I'm still most comfortable playing guitar rather than drums because it was the instrument that I started out at at a young age. But, um, you know, uh, drums were always my passion. So I'm glad it ended up being this way that uh, I was able to make drums my actual career. Yeah. But um, um, could I ask you a could I ask you a question here for a sec? Yeah, sure. Um, so you said there's three of you in that studio apartment, uh, but you yeah. also mentioned having a brother and then your two parents. So how did it? Oh well, yeah. My people? my father had to stay behind. Uh, he had to sell the house. He had to take care of a whole bunch of loose ends. He had to actually make his way out of Iran as just an Iranian citizen because that's what he was at the time. Mm -hmm. he, he, you know, he it was difficult. You know, he had to you know, jump through hoops to make it happen. But uh, he was able to do it. It took him two years. But uh, so we were in that studio apartment for two years, uh, waiting for him to to make his way over to the States. And he finally did. Uh, what kind of impact did that have on you? Like being in this, going into this small space, so living in a new country, very, very small space. Of course, there's lots of cool stuff to learn and experience. But you also, I would imagine, must have had a lot of challenges about not having your dad around and, and the cultural shift? Actually, I mean, I guess maybe we were just kind of well adjusted. Like we were really excited actually to be in America for one thing, because me personally, I was always, I always felt like an American more than an Iranian because I, I never really spoke the language well. And uh, we always spoke English in the house. It was, you know what I mean? It was just like my, com it was way more of my comfort zone was being in American culture. So um, I, as far as the space goes, I, I think it's pretty funny because like uh, that time of my life, I must have spent the most time I ever did outdoors, mm -hmm. you know, because if I wasn't out riding my skateboard, I was out riding my bike. Uh, I immediately started going to high school. So I was out with friends, but I was out with friends like to a fault, you know, like my mom couldn't <laughs> control me. And my mom, basically, she didn't have like, I guess, in a way, not having my dad around allowed me to just be like a wild man, you right, know, right. and just just do whatever the hell I wanted to. And, uh, you know, I don't think I made my mom worry all that much, you know, like, I hope I didn't anyway. <laughs> but uh, I mean, she would complain, but it, it wasn't like I, it wasn't like she would yell at me or anything like that. It was always like a, a stern talking to about this or that. But um, but for the most part, I was like out of the, out of the house for like those two solid years. I was just away. I was in Queens, just, you know, taking it all in and making friends. So what led you then from that, you know, you've moved to the country, you're having this kind of like two years of being a wild man out in the streets, but like, it sounds and, like and good a, And a bad student. Right, and a bad student. So, yeah, what, what leads, and horse. so what leads you to the punk scene then? 
just um well uh, there was a guy that i met that lived like a couple of blocks away from me in jamaica queens uh who was into a lot of heavy metal stuff as i was you know obviously like i had the look i had the long hair i had the you know denim and leather and all that kind of stuff so you know he saw me i don't know exactly how we met i think we met probably through one of my friends in high school but he he was already out of high school so but he lived close by so we ended up just like uh making that a place where we would hang out and uh he got his hands on the first necro seven inch right. I, I don't know if it was a first necro seven inch it was uh iq 32 mm-hmm. and uh so that was like the first hardcore record that i ever heard and you know that was to me it was like this wake-up call of like holy shit it, it everything doesn't have to be so precise and so pristine and so polished the way metal is Mm -hmm. it could be just like this raw emotional like visceral thing as well and have just as much impact and have possibly even more aggression Mm -hmm. so i was all about it that from there i started listening to noise the show which was I, i think it was an nyu radio show that they had every week and um they were playing all kinds of stuff out of England as well as like the stuff that was coming out of California, DC, Boston, New York, like whatever, all of like the, the, the punk rock and oi stuff that was uh, getting popular around that time they were playing. And uh, that, you know, that had an impact on me that kind of geared me towards what bands I was going to go out and look for in the record stores the next week. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it was always a search for that. It was always a search for the most aggressive music that I could find. Okay. So you find punk scene, uh, you find the punk scene, you get involved in it. You find this kind of like new sound. And what I love about punk and hardcore, one of my favorite things is you can be like legitimately a crappy musician, but you could write the coolest song. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not so much about your skill as a musician. It's about your creativity and your ability to like create something like ferocious and powerful and impactful. But you get involved in that scene. Tell me about Sick of It All. But I'm interested in not just the beginning of Sick of It All, but when Sick of It All became a band that actually had a shot at doing it for real. Well, that took a while. You know, that took a good seven years. Like, uh, you know, a lot of bands' careers don't even last that long, you know? So, uh, you know, and and I think one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why Sick of It All has had the longevity that we've had is the fact that we all met, like, uh, you know, organically. We we met uh, in high school, going to shows even, like, uh, because I remember meeting up with Lou and Pete uh, through a friend of mine and this is even before uh, we were in school together. I just kind of met them as neighborhood guys uh, first. And then like the next semester, Lou and Pete were going to school with me. I was like, oh, wow, these guys actually go to school here. This is cool. We could just hang out. And of course, what that meant was we could cut out of school <laughs> every single day and just like, you know, uh, waste our time, you know, getting beers and whatever. (laughs) That was when those guys actually drank when they were like, you know, 15, 16. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so, you know, basically sick of it all came together uh, just because, you know, ever anybody could play in a hardcore band. You didn't have to be some kind of great musician. We all knew this. And, uh, you know, um, I had already started playing in rest in pieces like the year before 
and Craig was already playing in New York City Mayhem. And, you know, Craig was also like one of our uh, neighborhood friends. And uh, so, you know, already like the band thing was starting to happen for us. And Lou and Pete wanted to make it happen for them, too. So they put a band together. Uh, at first, it wasn't I wasn't involved. It was a different drummer, this guy, Dave. And uh, there's, there was this guy, Mark Goober, on bass. And uh, they played their first show because Craig booked it opening up for youth of today out at the right track Inn in uh, long Island, you know? So he, even though Craig wasn't in sick of it all, he booked the first show at that point. That's crazy, you know? man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, but, but, you know, there was a certain point where I found myself always hang, you know, of course I was always hanging around with those guys. So they asked me questions. They, uh, you know, and I had already started playing drums for straight ahead. That was like my first experience drumming. So I was like a total novice drummer, but I was just excited to play. And when Lou and Pete started getting songs together, they started sounding good. And like the the fact that they were out there, the name was known, and uh, they had the ball rolling. Uh, at a certain point, it just, I don't really know what happened between Dave and them, but I just like stepped in as drummer. Uh, and then... I don't know what happened between Mark Goober and them, but Rich Cipriano was on bass. And so that was the original Sick of It All lineup. That was what, you know, like when we recorded the, the demo, those were the four guys. And, uh, you know, the, the only difference now is in 1993, Craig came in uh, to replace Richie. All right. There is so much that we could talk about here in this time frame, And, you know, for anyone listening, when I say Sick of It All, there's, there's two things that always stand out to me. Sick of it all, when I first heard and like got um, Blood, Sweat, and No Tears, which is their first LP, when I first got that record and I, I looked at Sick of it all on there, I thought, these are the scariest people I've ever seen in my life. Like, I'm terrified. These guys each <laughs> look like they had to fight through an army of skinheads to get to the show. <laughs> to then play to those very skinheads. Like it was like, but then when I, when I was able to meet all of you uh, years later, I thought, oh, these are just like very humble, like really, really nice people. And it was such an interesting contrast of like what you could think of when you're a kid and you get this record. Cause I grew up in the middle of Canada uh, in Calgary and you know, there certainly I'd never would have thought I was going to see sick of it all, let alone get a chance to meet all of you. So one, I've always been struck by sick of it all really stands out to me as just being like, nice nice normal guys like really really good guys but the thing well, the second you. thing well and and i think it's i think it's part of what's like the lovability and the longevity of the band is you just like real authentic real people and just nice guys but the other piece that stands out to me about sick at all and i talked about this earlier and i, I really want to start focusing on this now you're one of the first bands that really was like oh no we're gonna do this and like, we're actually going to do this as uh, like our art and our output. It's going to become what we do. Yeah. So I want to talk about that crossroads and some of the pushback that you got ar around that time. But first, let me ask you, what did you think you were going to do? So when you were a kid and you weren't doing it at school and you're good at school and you're out like being a mild man, did you, what did you think you were going to do when you grew up? I, I, I really didn't know. Of course, the, the whole time I really wanted to be a musician. That was right. like... My, my ideal uh, you know, job in life was to be a musician and uh, have it pay the bills and just have me have that uh, artistic expression and uh, outlet in my life and everything. 
So, you know, but, but, but there were times also because my grades were so bad, I didn't end up going to college. Uh, but luckily, like right around the time that like I was considering college, rest in pieces started happening. Mm-hmm. So, so there was like that possibility that the uh, music might uh, have that impact on me. And, um, and luckily I didn't join the Marines when I, I had that uh, idea in my head as well, because my right, friend right. joined the Marines. I was thinking, hey, maybe I should go with them, you know, and I'm glad I didn't do that because none of this would have ever happened. But uh, so, you know, like I, I was uh, just hopeful that music would uh, be my path. And luckily it ended up being that way. Um, it, I think it really has a lot to do with the fact that um, every time Sick of It All played a show, for example, we always gave it 110%. You know, I, I don't think anybody could ever take that away from us. Like that, that, that's one of the things about Sick of It All that nobody can deny is the fact that like when, when we're doing it, we're wholeheartedly doing it. And, um, and it's that energy and the chemistry of the, the four guys playing with each other that I think is like the magic that people can uh, relate to. And like, they, they want to be, a, uh, they want to be a part of and all of that kind of stuff. It's like, I guess, um, you know, I, I, I think that there is some kind of magic that, that is created when the four of us are playing together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, luckily, uh, the, the way things turned out, like the timing of everything was just very much on our side because hardcore hadn't been discovered in Europe at the time that we were first going over there. It was really very small, very, very underground still. The only hardcore bands, the only American hardcore bands that had been to Europe right before us were Youth of Today and Gorilla Biscuits, I believe. I mean, you know, besides the, the maybe like the bigger names like Dead Kennedys, Bad Religion and all of that. Mm-hmm. But um, hard, New York hardcore bands or, you know, anything like that, we were probably the third to make it over there. Mm-hmm. And then Youth of Today kind of dropped off and then Gorilla Biscuits broke up. And then that kind of just left us as like the flag bearers for an entire scene. Man, OK, I, I want to hit on this because I think it's this timing is super crucial. Uh, I did want to say something though. So I, I've I, I've been able to see Sick of It All like I don't know, like a ton of times, and I I, I want to say I've seen you in, in humongous shows where every single living body in that room was only there to see Sick of It All, and the room was packed. It was like the room was full of gorillas, and you were holding all the bananas. Like it was like one of those <laughs> scenarios. But I've also seen Sick of It All in rooms where it was like a very small crowd in a big big room, and. I never saw a difference between how sick of it all played. The energy, the integrity, the uh, the intensity was always there. Big crowd, small crowd, all of it. And I, so I agree with you. I want to. I just want to hit on that because like the consistency of sick of it all from era to era of the band has just been like really breathtaking and really important. Thank you for noticing. You know, first of all, but like uh, you know that that's one of the things that we we always want to satisfy ourselves with what we're doing as well it's not you know so much about like it sure if the audience is into it and then and everybody's going crazy that's that's great that makes for an awesome show but if we're if it's difficult and we have to pull teeth to get the audience to even react to us you know why deprive ourselves of the pleasure of playing music you know why 
put any less into it. If anything, sometimes you end up maybe putting a little extra exertion into what you're doing because you're angry, you know, like, why, why don't these people wake up? You know, it's like, yeah. and it ends up working for us because we're an aggressive band that sings about frustrations. So, yeah. you know, like the, the more angry you are, sometimes the, the better it comes off. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's talk about this, the switch though, because there came a point where, you know, you were a band playing amongst a community of people. You're doing like maybe small tours up and down the East coast put out your demo, put out your EP on Rev, but suddenly you're getting ready to put on an LP and you actually start becoming kind of a front runner of not just that scene, but in hardcore, you kind of become the band in a lot of ways. And you start getting some pushback. Now, of course, I'm talking about the infamous Sick oh. It All, Born oh, Against yeah. Radio yeah. Show, which I, I've got a lot, I could do a whole conversation with that. But more so what I'm interested in is like, when you as a group, what was the, the page that turned when you're like, no, we're going to do this band. Like, this is now what we're going to try and do as a living. What happened? What happened was we actually started making money in Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, M- money is the, the dictating factor uh, as far as, you know, whether or not people devote their lives to uh, being a musician or not. If, mm-hmm. if you can make money doing it and you start being able to actually pay the bills and not coming back home after a tour and needing to hold down a job in between tours, then, you know, why not do it? Why not like throw yourself into it? You know, uh, it makes no sense to me when I see uh, people that don't appreciate that gift, you know, because uh, it is a gift to be able to play music for a living and to, to be able to express yourself, you know? Um, but man, that, that was like, it's such an interesting thing though, because you were surrounded by like top tier talent. Like we're talking about a, an area that had, Chromags, mm-hmm. Agnostic Front, Leeway, yeah, Youth of Today. Like, I mean, we are talking crazy heavy hitters. Sick of it all was the only band that went on to do this. So, what was the differentiating factor? How did you guys figure out how to do a band for a living versus a band like Chromags that were like? It seems like a band like Chromags should have gone on to be like, like a legacy band that put out all these records, became like super rich, did whatever. But then they, you know, all the things that have happened there. What's, what was the deciding factor that made you guys able to figure this out? I think it's just the fact that we were, uh, we knew each other from high school. Mm-hmm. We were just friends before we were bandmates, mm-hmm. you know, and that understanding and that like, uh, you know, idea that nobody's ego is going to get the best of them and have them like ruin the entire thing. Uh, I think that's the difference between Sick of It All and definitely a band like Chromags, because a band like Chromags, they I don't think they all necessarily grew up with each other. I don't think they all necessarily had this the a common vision of what the band was supposed to be. I think they had musical differences, artistic differences, like all of those kind of things. Of course, those are the reason why bands break up, you know, so. Uh, luckily for us, we didn't have any of that. We, you know, we, we just wanted to make music as, you know, in, in the best way we could with our limited capabilities. Like we, we were not technically great musicians or anything like that. We just wanted to play and have people react and have a good time doing it. And that was what we did. And we continued doing it and we continued getting along as friends, as people, you know, and, 
uh, where other bands, I guess, maybe at a certain point couldn't stand being in the same room with each other, you know? Well, and, and that stood out, like when, when I spent time with Sick at All, that stood out because you guys actually all hung out together, which is cool. Yeah. It was like really cool to see. But let's, let's stick with something here. The band starts making money. So you're in, you're, you've put out a record on In Effect and like it comes out without the lyrics inside of it. And you did yeah. it so that your records could get out to more and more stores. And you start getting pushback from people. People are criticizing you for, for making a living off the band. What was that like for you? Well, actually, the interesting thing is that the band was not, we weren't even making a living off of it at that mm -hmm. point. You know, mm -hmm. the, the biggest amount of money that I made uh, in playing with Sick of It All at that time, I think I, I came home with like 2000 bucks from that uh, DRI tour that we did, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, and that was in support of the first album. So mm -hmm. and then I had to go back and, and work a job. You know, right. like everybody had to come back and work a job because yeah. th there wasn't like we, we didn't have uh, a management company behind us, like getting us this tour and, you know, followed by this tour, followed by that tour, followed by the other. And, you know, keeping the money coming in, we didn't have anything like that. It was still very much just the band making its own decisions. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, another thing about that pushback is the fact that they, um, they they also they they were criticizing the band about uh, being signed to a major label, but we weren't on a major label. We we were on a big independent, you know. So uh, just the fact that we were as just gaining a little bit of success, I guess, and and the fact that our records were available in malls, that was what was really bothering these people because they wanted it to be their little scene. You know, they wanted it to be their little club. And, you know, uh, we had bigger aspirations than that. We weren't so limited. We didn't want it to be just so small. We were kids going to CB's matinees that didn't feel like we belonged at first because we were kind of like, you know, from Queens or from Westchester, from the suburbs, you know, like we and then we were hanging out with these like super urban guys from like Harley and John and, you know, like. They, they were like real urban kids, you know? And uh, so we felt like we were those people that were buying records in malls that, you know, that now we were catering to. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't want to take it away from them. We wanted to cater to whoever was interested in our music. We didn't want it to be limited to just a small amount of people in select cities across the country. You know, we wanted it to be all-encompassing like a global phenomenon so that's but what why? we did why did you want that because we wanted our music to be heard yeah man we uh, just so wanted to reach people can i can i speak from a fan perspective here sure how i heard from of sick of it all was my friend joey who was not like he wasn't like a, a hardcore guy necessarily he's just like a young guy that was like a kind of an outsider dude he somehow got a sick of it all record in calgary alberta when we were kids and that record changed my life. Blood, sweat, and no oh, tears. Yeah? Hands In up, Calgary, hands down. Huh? Yeah, hands down <laughs> changed my life. So that's why when I listened to that um, Sick of It All, Born Against conversation, I was kind of like, man, you know, like the point of making those records available to a wider spectrum of people, like that probably had huge positive impact on people's lives. I know it did for me. 
I would not be going down the path I was going down had I not, that record not been available in like whatever ridiculous like retail store. Well, so, I mean, you, you got to think about it. Like, you know, we were we weren't idiots. I mean, everybody read Maximum Rock and Roll. We all saw the small towns that these bands were coming out of. You know, like it wasn't everything. Everything wasn't from a major city. Every yeah. everything wasn't from like some of the most genius bands were coming out of these small towns. And the only way to get their your uh, to get hardcore music heard in those small towns is to make it widely available. So, you know, we were just uh, doing that. All right. So you've got this like great friendship with these guys. You come up with them. You're you're not making a living yet, but you're, you know, you're getting national recognition, maybe even international recognition, but at some point you leave sick of it all. Yeah. I, um, I had a girlfriend who was uh, bummed out at the feeling of, uh, watching me go away on tour and all that kind of stuff so she convinced me to actually leave the band at that point the band i I was more focused on rest in pieces for the those first few years that i was involved with sick of it all so rest in pieces was really my passion i was helping out with sick of it all and like you know still writing music for him and stuff and helping him out with the the songwriting that they were doing but rest in pieces was really where i was putting all my eggs you know um and so I listened to this girl like an idiot and I ended up working at least I ended up staying in the industry, but on the business side of things, I uh, ended up working as a publicist for in effect records, mm-hmm. you know? So it, it was like the whole relativity umbrella, which uh, it was like combat core combat records. Uh, there were, there were a few other labels that were part of that relativity umbrella, but like, mm-hmm in effect was one of them. So uh, I was still involved with sick of it all, but on the record label side. So did you have friends try and talk you out of it? At that point? uh, Not really. I don't know. Maybe people did. I don't really, I I don't, maybe I just refused to listen, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was young and I was stupid and I, 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 I wanted to do the uh, nine to five job with a girlfriend thing for a while. But then I quickly realized that 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 wasn't for me. And, uh, you know, I I really started questioning how right we were for each other. And I really started thinking about how right it was for me to play music for a living instead. How'd you you get back in the band? I got a call from Pete, you know, like uh, uh, when they started working on writing music for Just Look Around, I got a call from Pete just saying, Armand, do you want to join again? Like, you know, like we're, we're going to start uh, working on a new record. It would be great if you could just be a part of it. And I was just like, hell yeah, let, let's do this. And, uh, and you know, I, I got along really well with Richie. Richie was like a, a great guy to write music with because he was just so funny. You know, like you would, you would actually like come up with, you would get songs out of him fucking around in the studio, just like making fun of this person or that person, like, there would be a riff somehow created from that that would become an entire song. And like, just like those processes of, you know, creativity with Richie were just uh, uh, so much fun that uh, like, of course I was excited to be back in there and, uh, and being a part of it again. And, you know, uh, uh, just look around came together really well, I think. And uh, even back then we were, being very experimental, even touching on very experimental topics in hardcore, like uh, 
you know, like back then the AIDS pandemic and, uh, and just like what the, the gay community was going through, uh, dealing with it. And, you know, like other bands at that point were not talking about that kind of stuff. And, uh, it was happening all around us. Mm -hmm. So why not write a, a few songs about it? So we did, you know, and just look around is like kind of a, uh, an important record, I think, because it touches on those, those topics. I believe Just Look Around, and I, I'm not sure if I've got this right from the sick of it all side of things. I think Just Look Around is like deep, classic, classic hardcore record. Oh, specifically, Well, specifically, like from, let's say, like Just Look Around the song, you take that song and you talk about our world today. Oh, yeah. Like that yeah, is like, that, that song is like, <laughs> it's like clearly like i mean you could take those lyrics and put that out today and people would be like oh yeah like that's literally what's going on nobody i I, first time i heard that song i was like oh my like i was like a little kid and i was like holy crap that's like i felt it was like super edgy and like really direct and clear the video is stark kind of blends styles a little bit it's like clearly like a hardcore song but yet it has a little bit of a like almost like metal. rapish metal oh, yeah, thing. The like, thing. It, That's it's true. like an, That's it's true. an interesting mix like that song touches on so many genres and it's mm-hmm. but it's also super edgy that whole record i believe is classic now tell me though within the sick of it all camp do you guys all like that record yeah i think uh i mean some of the songs go on too long i think mm-hmm. you know if we were uh you know given a chance to like go back in time and redo it we would have cut some of the lengths of the songs down a touch mm-hmm. and maybe not gotten quite as far out there with some of the parts, because like, I know the, the ending of the song paint, the pain strikes is really just kind of odd. It, yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. like surfer surf punk, you know? So uh, there, there were certain things that we would have probably done differently, but um, mm-hmm. overall, I mean, there's, there's an energy to it. I think uh, I had a really good bite to it. Uh, like you said, it was like in your face and direct, you know? So uh, I, I think it, it, we were all really happy with it uh, at the time. And I think it's like stood the test of time really well, especially with what you said about the lyrics for just look around. I'm in like, I still get chills when I hear that song. Um I actually recall there was a, a person that I was dating at the time heard me listening to that record and she was like, this is like rap metal. And I remember thinking, <laughs> you know, I don't think it's going to work out. Anyways. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's talk about some more straight up business stuff. Cause like what are from your perspective, like I said earlier, I truly believe in my heart sick of it all was the first hardcore band that really figured it out how to be, make your band a living while staying hardcore and not being corny and not making stupid choices that like were like ethically compromising. You started a hardcore band, you're still a hardcore band. I think one of easily one of the the top five most important hardcore bands historically. So what were some of the hardest lessons you and the band learned about being a business and doing a business the way you want to do it? What are like some of the hard lessons? Well, I mean, I don't really know like the hard lessons. You know, that uh, that would really kind of make it seem like we went through really rough patches. And mm-hmm. I don't think we ever really went through rough patches. I mean, we got uh, dicked around by promoters. We got dicked around maybe by like some like merch company here or there or something like that. Uh, but, you know, basically our career has been pretty solid and we've we've been lucky in that we've known people 
who, uh, who gave us good advice back mm -hmm. before we knew how to operate as a business. Mm -hmm. And we also had people around us, like, for example, Stormy Shepard being our booking agent in the States. Like, uh, she has a really good head on her shoulders. She has been able to help us along, you know, ever since 1993. Mark MAD, Mark mm -hmm. Nickel from MAD in Europe, he was really like a big part of what made sick of it all sick of it all uh especially in europe which was like such a big part of our career like being able to get like borderline like mainstream success in mm -hmm. europe yeah uh and i think mark played a big part in that and he's like and he you know he comes from old punk rock and everything like that so it's never like we found ourselves sitting down with the wrong people to do business with or, or to represent us in business. We luckily, we always found the right people to, to, uh, you know, do that kind of talking for us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, I guess, once we were able to feel that we could do it for ourselves, we had learned a lot of the, the important lessons that bands should know. Like for example, Hey, publishing money equally to all the guys yeah, publishing yeah. publishing money and and wives or girlfriends are the two biggest things that will break a band up mm -hmm. you know and you know i i heard that advice back like right around the time that sick of it all was becoming uh you know like nationally known and it made a big impact on me and uh that's why and i had already experienced uh losing friends and you know uh feeling really bad about it and having a lot of regret coming out of rest in pieces because i became quickly a musical dictator in that, in that band and i learned the error of my ways back then in like the the late 80s mm -hmm. so i knew going into uh, sick of it all's career to avoid some of those pitfalls can i ask you a, qu a rest in pieces question sure how representative of your current style is the back cover of the Rest in Pieces LP? Oh, you mean like the uh, the Under My Skin record? <laughs> uh, I, you know what? You know, the, the funny thing is, like, you would think that I dressed up for that shot. I didn't dress up for that shot. That was literally how those were my working clothes. Did, I everybody, show, did everybody show up in their, in their like normal clothing for that shoot? The only guy that, I mean, Rob's big, like, leather uh, trench coat, <laughs> <laughs> that was something that, that he got his hands on and he was excited to wear for the, for the, the pictures and everything. So, but, but uh, Craig borrowed my pants, my uh, windbreaker <laughs> for that, for that shoot. <laughs> and then I just wore my same uh, clothes that I did. My, I, Craig and I were working as movers, furniture right. movers in Queens at that time and i you know i wore that that hat and i had the camo jacket and you know, it was just like that that was how i dressed going to work every day so for me it's really not that embarrassing like i i think about it and i don't think it's embarrassing i think it's the <laughs> sickest band photo of like like i want i want the world to dress like that right now every day <laughs> All right, let's 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 keep going. I got a, I got a couple more questions for you. So I believe you were the first person in the band to to have a kid, to have a family, right? Like yeah. So did that change the game for you? 
Not at all. Actually, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting because like thinking back to because at the beginning of this lockdown and everything like last year, uh, it, right before the lockdown happened, we ended up getting a puppy. Right. And uh, the puppy was a lot of work, a lot of responsibility, a lot of like, you know, you, you can't do what you want to do because there's this puppy, you know. Uh, and I think back and I'm like, well, I had kids back in 1998 and 2000 <laughs> and yeah and they were toddlers all the way through the you know maybe mid uh, 2000s i mean yeah. uh, two, uh, the aughts you know so uh it's interesting that i was able to be so musical back then and lately i haven't been all that musical maybe, maybe i'm just getting old i don't know but uh um and also another thing is like anytime i pick up a guitar i write something it doesn't sound like sick of it all you know yeah, so yeah. uh i've been working on music but it, i don't know how much of it is going to end up as sick of it all songs but going back to those days my wife and i were very careful we uh we thought about what the band was up to we had windows of time to get pregnant and if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, if it, it didn't. But luckily, both times we had these windows, they both worked. You know, so uh, and we were able to I was able to be home for at least the first few months of, of both of my kids lives, be there for the birth, be there for all of the the difficult times while my wife was, uh, you know, still pregnant uh, and uncomfortable, you know, so uh, it it. I really didn't alter the band's career at all. Like I, I, if there was anything that we ever turned down, it might've been like a weekend of this, a weekend of that. And, you know, there were probably pretty good weekends, like, you know, opening up for some pretty big bands, but, uh, but it didn't really make a huge difference to what the band did. And I'm, I'm that, that's, I, I feel like a sense of accomplishment, you know, putting that much time and effort into not, like screwing these guys over uh, because I wanted to have a family. The thing that seems to stand out to me, or not seems to, the thing that is standing out for me in your story, there doesn't seem to be a lot of doubt at any point that was just like, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do this and I just have faith it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. Yeah, I guess so. I, I don't know. It's, uh, maybe it's because I'm such like a perfectionist that mm -hmm. like as far as music goes, uh, if something's wrong, it's not going to get released, you know, and me being my own worst critic, I guess I keep a certain level of quality control, you know, operating at all times that that makes it that way that it kind of gives me the confidence to to make those kind of calls, you know, mm -hmm. so. What about sick of it all from like a relationship point of view? Was there ever almost a breaking point between all of you or has it always just been like, no, no matter what, we're going to keep it going? Uh, there, there was one time where uh, the band almost broke up, you know, but that was, uh, you know, personal kind of stuff that I'd rather not really go into, mm -hmm. but uh, it was worked through and uh, it's still, uh, you know, fine until today. That That, that was like, that was like a really strange time in the, in the band's career, but uh, we worked through it and uh, we're, you know, just kept chugging forward. Right on, man. All right. So what about for bands coming up today? Because, you know, the game has changed a lot since, since the 80s when you were playing. And now bands can 
kind of easily make a make a living off of music. And I think there's some good stuff with that. I think there's some bad stuff with that. I remember there was a turning point where I was able to, for a short window of time, like live off of music. And it was cool and also kind of awful at the same time. Like there was good stuff and there was bad stuff about <laughs> what, it. What kind of what kind of awful stuff? Uh, the awful was that um, you had to con- you were only able to make a living off of how good your next thing was. You know, so there was this like constant you felt stress. As stress, like I remember putting out like an LP and just being like, I don't know, like I, I like I have to make the next LP has to be as good, if not better. And this mm-hmm. sense of like urgency about it. But also the other thing was that like so much of it was tied to touring and that if you weren't on tour, because it doesn't work like normal music. Well, I guess normal music has now kind of matched what punk and hardcore is in a lot of ways. It's that touring was how you made your money. And without touring, you were screwed. But like touring meant that you weren't around your friends, your family, and you were kind of like constantly on the road. And it yep. was tough because we didn't have what you had. We didn't all get along. Like, I mean, it was like actually quite oh, unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> like, it could be pretty unpleasant. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's, it's like, you know, when when you talk about like your, your average band, people get together through, uh, you know, confidential ads and newspapers and stuff like that. They meet through friends sometimes they have absolutely no idea what their backgrounds are and uh whether or not they're going to mesh creatively or even just uh, personally is you know like their their personalities their idiosyncrasies all th- those kind of things come into play so much because you're in such close quarters with these people and mm-hmm. for such long periods of time and through such emotional roller coasters that uh, you know like a that's what touring is. Touring is like an emotional roller coaster sometimes because, you know, you have great joy and you have great sorrow, and it's like you know, all in the matter of just a few hours. And it, there's a lot of people can't take that. A lot of people don't have the the mental mental toughness to be able to handle that kind of thing. You have to be kind kind of level headed and uh, uh, just committed to the cause. Yeah, you could literally not pay me enough money to go on a six-week tour i would never ever do that again in my life really now like two weeks two weeks in a heartbeat i would i'd have no problem i would never go on a six-week tour again all right but (laughs) what advice do you have for bands now like young bands who are like yeah i want to go for this i want to make this happen just i guess make your music available no matter what like try not to feel the stress about uh you know uh topping the last thing you put out so much you know don't don't stress out about anything just let things happen naturally and uh you know if, if it works it works it's it, it's really not up to you it's up to the world whether or not they make that connection with you or not mm-hmm. so i would say like just keep doing what you're doing and don't worry about it so to me and again like i'm thinking about your story there just seems to be so much like yeah like i trust this i just you know, we're going to make it or we're not going to make it, but there doesn't seem to be a ton of doubt in your story. Like you're going to work hard. You're going to focus on it. You're going to put out your best thing you can, but you know, you and sick of it all just doesn't seem, doesn't seem to be a story of like a lot of deep fear and a lot of deep doubt, but more of a lot of like hopefulness and belief in yourself and just being like, leave doubt on the sidelines and just keep pushing forward. Does that, does that sound about right? Yeah. I mean, we all know that the band is limited as far as our appeal goes. You know, we're not, we're not a band that's ever going to, appeal like the way a mainstream act could you know because lou can't carry a tune the way a a regular singer can he's a screamer he's got that uh intense scream 
which is good for us, you know, but we know that there's like a ceiling. So we knew very early on, like when certain bands were overtaking us in popularity, you know, it's because they had these choruses, they had these like, you know, hooks and that they could like, uh, they could become like the next big radio band just because of that hook, even though they're like seriously heavy, they could be super big. But with us, we don't have those qualities. So we knew that to, to keep our expectations kind of low and just like if there is a ceiling, just bump into that ceiling as much as we can, you know, fly right up to it, bump into it as much as possible. But there seem like moments where you almost broke through. Like, you know, in Europe, you basically broke through. But there seemed like in North America, a lot of moments, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, where you were like, all like, a song away from like becoming a mainstream band. I don't know. I mean, I never really felt that. Dude, Step Down? When Step Down came out? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a chance, like, but it didn't happen. Yeah, even mm -hmm. getting Beavis and Butthead even liked it, you mm -hmm. know? And like, at that time, g having a positive reaction by Beavis and Butthead, I, I was thinking to myself, oh, shit, is this really going to happen? Like, are we going to get a whole lot bigger because of this? And yeah. it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we were just you know, still on the Warp Tour and, you know, doing the same thing as we always did. Yeah, like it, it seems like Sacred All has hit a certain spot, but has stayed comfortably in that spot. It's not like you're like scratching and clawing to stay there, but nor are you like going to like push past it. You've kind of taken your place and that place is like a healthy place and you guys seem pretty comfortable with it. Well, you know, it's, it, it's you know, we always have the the thing about us being older as well in the mm -hmm. back of our minds so you know uh luckily we've always had the right attitude on stage always make every show as good as it can be mm -hmm. uh and i think that prevents us from ever really looking all that old on stage and you know i'm hoping that when we do really really look old on stage people will give us a pass because we've always tried so hard and we will probably still try really hard when we're looking super old you know so uh, you know, every few years, there's like a new generation of hardcore kids that, that comes around. And for us to appeal to them is a challenge, you know, because a lot of like young hardcore kids, they want a band from their generation. They want it to be their thing. They don't necessarily want to become historians and, you know, look into, you know, 30, 40 years ago at the roots of the music and like, where did this style come from or where did you know that kind of vocal styling come from or anything like that because now when i was young all i had to do is go back like 10 years to the stooges and that was like pretty much the birth of the style of music and you know even that for me i was like i, I would you know i love the stooges don't get me wrong but like uh it wasn't like i didn't want to make music that sounded like the stooges i wanted to make music that sounded like the blitz you know mm -hmm. and negative approach so you know it was uh a different thing altogether and and mm -hmm. that kind of thing is still happening you still have all the younger kids that uh that want a, a band to be representative representative of them of their uh perspectives not necessarily mm -hmm. of the old guys who uh started the music scene you know yeah. So there are a lot of bands that came up that were like juniors to you, younger bands that went on to go to pretty great heights. You know, I think a band like Rancid 
band like AFI, bands like that. Um, and you've played a role in getting them some attention early on. Mm-hmm. How has it felt for you as a, like a musician, you know, creative force uh, within the scene to help people out and then to watch them exceed your level of, let's say, of success? Well, yeah, of success. But, you know, success is, success is a questionable word because I look at success as happiness. Like, are you happy right. with what you do and how well you've done it? versus monetary or kind of recognized success. So I don't know any of those guys. Let's just say they've become more successful on like, a, um, you know, they're more recognized and, you know, that's how I'd look at it. So how does that feel? Well, I mean, all of those people, the, any band that we ever toured with that went on to bigger things, they were always such sweethearts that we were just happy for them, you know, and we've kept in touch with them and we're, you know, like uh, you could say that about rise against as well rise against Mm -hmm. was a band that we took out uh on their first european tour and they shared a bus with us and they were just such nice guys and we all got along so well that like you know what came uh later was you know everybody was just happy for them and happy for their for their success and uh their ability to make music uh their life and uh make it like you know do to do so well you know Mm -hmm. like the the fact that we do have these low expectations maybe it is kind of uh, maybe it does kind of stifle us in a way Mm -hmm. who knows i I don't really know if it does stifle sick of it all but uh we don't necessarily feel bad about other people doing well yeah maybe maybe if we encountered a band that were complete assholes that then went on to be super you know super ginormous then it would be a different story but everybody that we've toured with that uh, has been that way have been really really nice guys that are humble come from the the same scene that that we did Mm -hmm. and uh have all the same uh passions about the music that we do so Mm -hmm. uh yeah i I don't know i I guess it would be different if they were jerks but (laughs) we're lucky yeah, man. And again, like the stored career of sick of it all, it keeps going. Like, I'm always like, damn, like what's next for you guys? Cause you've done it all. You've basically done it all, but there always seems to be some other thing that you figure out how to do. And you've kept it interesting. You've kept people like, I mean, people love sick of it all. Like I love sick of it all. And I love to see that continued success. You know, as we're starting to, to get towards the end of the interview, I wanted to ask you, you know, like if I think of my own career, I could think of a few people who were like seminal and helping me go on to, to achieve things. So when we think of sick of it all, who are some of the people that you could say have played like a crucial role in helping you guys become the band that you are today? Well, uh, you know, it's definitely as far as the business side goes, you know, like I, I already talked about like our, our booking agents being so helpful in our career, but th- there was a guy that was my roommate in the early nineties. And uh, he ended up, and actually he had hired me to work at Ineffect Records under him in the, the press department of, uh, of Ineffect Records. And so I was working for him, and then I ended up becoming a roommate with him. And then the, for a number of years, he was just there watching what was happening with Sick of It All, watching the band become bigger, get the uh, success in Europe, uh, and you know, he was always helpful. He was always super helpful. And for a little while, I felt like he was almost like the fifth member of the band mm-hmm. because 
he was coming up with ideas and, you know, giving us feedback about the way we're doing things and, you know, and, and even kind of like stringing uh, relationships together between us and other bands and other uh, music companies, other merchandise companies. He was like the, the catalyst for a lot of different things. And then at a certain point, he just said, you know, I'm doing all this stuff for you guys. Why don't I just become your manager? And that was Steve Martin, who uh, runs a place called Nasty, Nasty Little Man Publicity. Yeah, and he, he's gone on to do quite well for himself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, he started as, he, he almost like started as a success. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was crazy. Like, uh, he, uh, one of his first clients, I think, was Helmet, and then Helmet blew up. And then looks like, you know, he just went on to do like the Beastie Boys. And like, now he's working with Paul McCartney, and, mm -hmm. you know, like it's just, and the Foo Fighters, you know, so uh, he's, like a really super successful guy, but he was able to really kind of help us out with the business side of things when we were still kind of learning the ropes. And I, I definitely wanted to mention his name. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a couple more questions if you, since, since we got some time here, is that okay with you? Mm -hmm. Sure. All right. Um, I want to hit from a, from label to label to label and you can tell me like what that experience was like for you. Okay. So um, Revelation, you're a young band, you put out an EP on Rev. What was that like for you? Well, I mean, they were the, the label that like really uh, helped us gain a, a foothold in the scene, you know, because uh, being able to be on that comp and do our own EP through them was the reason why we were able to get a, a deal with in effect. I don't think uh, who knows what would have happened if we if we hadn't gotten an in effect deal, our, our first album would probably have been on Revelation as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, the, everything was always cool. Jordan was always a super understanding, really cool guy, still is, and very, very supportive of the bands that he that he works with. So incredible guy. Okay. In effect. Yep. In effect was also a cool experience, you know. Uh, Howie Abrams was the guy that actually signed the band. And uh, I think he did a really good job. He always fought for the band, even though he had higher ups to answer to all the time that didn't necessarily agree with everything that he wanted to do. But he was from the scene. He understood the scene and he knew what sick of it all should be. So, uh, you know, he was always like very helpful and fought for us trying to get the the money to do certain things and the backing from the label to do certain things. All right. Relativity. Well, same thing. That, that, that's uh, the same time as in effect. Yeah. So was it in effect got folded underneath it or did it rebrand? Like what was the difference there? It was a subsidiary. We were mm -hmm. never actually on like relativity records proper. Mm -hmm. So relativity for just look around. It was really just in was effect. It? Well, well I, don't, I thought it was just in effect records. You want me to go grab my LP? Can I, <laughs> can I grab my LP? I don't know. But, but anyway, it, it, like even it was if essentially it was just in effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's that probably that that because it was the same people anyway involved yeah. with with both albums. So so it was three releases. It was the two LPs and an EP in between. They were all on in effect. Yeah, it, that experience was kind of like we had the right guys working with us, mm -hmm. but the people that they had to answer to weren't the right people. Okay. Okay. So East West. East West was uh, very positive. It started out really well. 
too bad it didn't last, you know, because once things changed to Electra, uh, it, it was altered in a, in a kind of negative way. East West, we, we had uh, an A&R guy that really got the band. He was really super excited about everything. He threw tons of money at us, you know, so we were like, you know, we couldn't believe that, what we were living. And uh, so, so that was great. It was a lot of fun. And I think they, they did a, an amazing job for Scratch a Surface in Europe. Mm. Not necessarily so much in the States, but in Europe, they did an incredible job. And then Built to Last happened. And it was the reverse. In Europe, they dropped the ball. In America, they did a great job, but that was Electra. And I don't even know if I think I think we lost our AR guy. Once you lose your AR guy, then your your whole uh, experience with the label is kind of gonna go up in flames, you know, because the, you to to find another person who really wants to work with you mm-hmm. is difficult as opposed to you being handed to somebody else here. This is your project now, mm-hmm. you know, even though they had no passion for it, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's the way uh, things go in a major label. It's like, if, if you lose your, your A and R guy, you're screwed. Okay. Um, fat records. Fat records was always incredible to deal with fat records. Mm-hmm. Uh, fat Mike totally has his heart in the right place. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Uh, he wants to see all his friends succeed. He wants to see everybody play music. He wants them to make a living doing it. Uh, I've never met a more like supportive guy from the industry than Fat Mike. So the uh, only problem was Fat Records didn't have the presence in Europe that we so desperately needed. Mm-hmm. So that's why after a few albums and we noticed that things were just falling off album by album in Europe, that we needed to sign to a, a European-based label. All right, so Century Media. Century Media has been a very, very positive experience since, since day one. Like, they've always uh, given us tremendous support. I think, you know, maybe the first couple of years were a little bit better for us because mm-hmm. uh, the, Rob, the guy who actually signed us, he was like our A&R guy, plus he was one of the heads of the label. So working with him was incredible, but then he ended up leaving, you know, like he ended up selling the, uh, his part of the company, both guys, I think uh, the, the two original owners ended up selling their parts of the company, but we've been very lucky with the people that have ended up working with us. Like, for example, there's a lady named Melanie out of Germany that, uh, that deals with us. And I think she's done a fantastic job and she, always comes and uh, says hi to us on every tour and spends uh, at least sees us at a, 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 at least one show or if not more. That's cool, man. So as we're wrapping up here, I got a, a couple of fun questions for you. Okay. Okay. Tell us the story about doing backups for Gorilla Biscuits. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I can't really remember exactly how that came together. I think it was just that somebody, cause we we're always hanging out together anyway. You know, so we were all hanging out together in the city. I think maybe somebody got a call or somebody just knew beforehand that Girl Biscuits were doing this, uh, you know, gang vocal thing mm-hmm. at a certain day down at Don Fury. So we uh, all just headed down there and, uh, and, and ended up Ray Capo was there as well. And there were like uh, uh, Purcell was there. It was like a few other uh, 
you know, random people from the hardcore scene that like all kind of converged on this one studio. And it was so much fun. It was just like, you know, because it's always great hanging out with the, the Gorilla Biscuits guys. And we always just joke around so much. And it's always a big laugh, you know. And then to have Ray Capo in there and, you know, he was dancing around and like just cracking everybody up. And uh, yeah, it was just like a, a really awesome day of hang, of just hanging out and making, a, you know, put, putting some gang vocals down on a, a seminal hardcore record. Absolute seminal. Huge shout out to Gorilla Biscuits. Uh, obviously a celebrated, celebrated band and people within the scene. All right. Fun questions now. Rat scabies or Mackie? Uh, oof. You mean on my style? Yep. I'd have to, I have to go with uh, Rat scabies because I'm not as good as Mackie. I'm, I'm not, if, if I was a better drummer, I could say Mackie, but I'm more Rat scabies. I'm more just like smash the shit out of your cymbals and make it as driving as you can you know, without, uh, without much technical ability. And that's more like rat scabies. All right. Tommy Ramone or Marky Ramone? Tommy Ramone or Marky Ramone? Uh, I'm going to say Marky Ramone. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Robo or Chuck Biscuits? Uh, Chuck Biscuits. Right. Chuck Biscuits right. was always, I respected that guy's skill a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, even with the early like circle jerk stuff, like he was so fun to watch. And then him joining uh, Social D, like uh, being able to tour with him when he was in Social D, that was awesome. Just to be able to watch him play every day. Okay. Um, double pedal or two kick drums? <laughs> uh, uh, double pedal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. I, 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 I appreciate two kick drums, but it just, it's just too cumbersome. <laughs> All right. So I got a question for me and then a question that's going to satiate my curiosity. And then a question that I think you'll have some fun with. And so these are the last two questions. So three on, you know, three New York hardcore, or even just from that area bands that didn't get enough love. They never got their just due. Um, Adrenaline OD. Mm-hmm. from new jersey mental abuse also from new jersey mm-hmm. and i'm i'm gonna go uh and I, i'm gonna say leeway because leeway the born to expire was such an important record at, which really shaped the way a lot of bands wrote it, it was shelved for a good two years crazy. it was recorded and shelved for like a good two years before it saw the light of day and in those two years it really made a big difference on what every other New York band did. And they had a big part in, in uh, shaping what New York hardcore sounded like. And, and the, you know, just like the, they, they made everybody's, everybody's game had to be like here when it was here before. Yeah. So, you know, Leeway is just one of those bands. Like, I don't think they get the, the credit they're due. All right. And then this is the question for you, not for me, because, you know, I am a, a straight edge dude, but I know my man Armand is a big beer fan. So, oh, yeah. All right. Tell me right now, right off the top of your head, top three beers that you are you're drinking right now that you're loving. 
Uh, well, I mean, I, I like my favorite beers, like my house beers, uh, uh, Stefaner from Germany. They have a, a beer called Vitus, which is, or Vitus. I don't, I don't know how you say it in German, but it's a, a Weizenbach, but it's mm. pale in color, a nice kind of banana, uh, flavor to it, clove on the nose, you know, and it's delicious. Uh, I would say um founders porter is always like a really really solid go-to beer because and i'm gonna go with a big one i'm gonna go with cigar city hunapu because mm. that's uh it's a really strong imperial stout and it's just like it, it it's cut with a, a bunch of like mexican uh chocolate kind of flavors which just take it to another level Dude, I, I love it. It's funny because he said, oh, a house beer. I don't know what, like, I like that it has a category. <laughs> oh, well, let's talk about house beers. That's not like my walking around beers. Just just the house beer. Well, yeah, house beers. It's like something that you always want to have around. You always want to have it just like within reach. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. All right. Listen, Armand, this has been such a cool conversation. I could talk to you for hours and hours about like, obviously, I, I could geek out with you just about sick of it all because I mean, the, the impact of that band in my life has just been huge 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 but also like this is the business side and as we're closing off i just want to thank you man like you guys have been such a huge inspiration to so many people and it's like so many people have been able to do their passion in a way that allows them to kind of live off live off of their passion because of you and you really from my perspective created that blueprint we got into that a little bit today well and the more we, we, we were also we were also a little lucky in the timing of the grunge scene, you know, the yeah. grunge scene and all of those, uh, the hundred percent creative control contracts being signed in, uh, right before we, uh, ever talked to a major, you know, they, those were the bands that kind of set the pace for us being able to dictate our own careers, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so we never went into it like a slave to somebody else's vision. Right, right. And of course, for bands before you guys, that was like a huge issue. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I think the grunge bands being able to have make that breakthrough and be able to create the, like the norm in the industry being 100% creative control had a lot to do with us being able to always call the shots and not have some like cigar chomping dude, you know, telling us what, what we should do or what we should sound like. Totally, man. Um, all right. Any last words as we're closing off today? Uh, just want to always give my love to all of the fans out there of sick of it all of, of my music, whether it be uh, rest in pieces straight ahead, whatever, um, you know, uh, everybody has kept us doing this and it's been a beautiful thing seeing everybody support the band, uh, throughout this last year because we, our income has been completely cut off. So seeing people still buying all the merchandise that they have even donating money to us uh you know through uh spotify for example like those kind of things have helped us tremendously you know we we're still struggling but we have like a little bit of like financial security because of that and uh you know we're really really grateful to all the people that have done that for us well, and as we're closing off here, um, my gratitude and all of the younger generation's gratitude uh, to sake of it all. Um, without you guys, I don't know where we'd be. I can't think of a band 
who really set up the structure of what hardcore can be from a like productive community in a, in a way like you guys did. So thank, thank you. So, man. I, yeah. I appreciate you noticing that uh, mm -hmm. and bringing it up and making it such a topic of this conversation, because normally nobody really wants to talk about business, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, thinking back and like you said, a lot of the earlier bands that we looked at as our influences, they didn't have their business side, uh held down at all so yeah maybe I, I never really thought about it but i guess you're right, <laughs> right on, man. okay listen fantastic talking to you and dave drop the beat armand thank you so much for being on the show uh, you know i could talk for hours about sick of it all and get into all the records and dissect all the songs. That's not the value of this conversation. The value is how do four kids figure it out to make their, their creative pathway their living. And that's such a cool story. Again, like I can see bands today doing what they're doing because Sick of It All did it first. So huge shout out to them. The other piece I want to say is we're closing up here. This is a story of a band pushing the limits pushing the limits of creativity, of what, you know, what kind of expression you can make in the scene, but also how you do a business. You know, like doing business, like the word business is almost like a bad word sometimes when you, when you are in the creative space. That's ridiculous because the whole idea here is you're putting things out there for people to consume. And unless you're going to do it just for free, then there's going to be some kind of, of a business side to it. Why not be really conscious of it and do it not just in a good way, but in the best way possible. And sick of it all, again, constantly pushing the limits, finding not just a way to do it, but the best way to do it. So massive shout out to them, uh, continuing inspiration. And for anyone out there who is not just a creative, but trying to figure out their path in business and figuring out how they want to make a living, push the limits. What is doesn't have to be what will be. You get to decide that. But you decide that through your blood, your sweat, and your no tears. All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. And as we're closing off, I want to remind you that we're produced by Patrick McKechnie. We're edited by Dave Larson. And our design is by Tammy Levy. All right. So we will see you next time on One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond.